This morning we'll be looking at Isaiah chapter 50. It is printed in your bulletin there on page six if you want to follow along there or in uh, scripture in your Bible or in your device. Isaiah chapter 50. Hear now this firm foundation that we have in God's word. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea, I make the rivers a desert, their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, Walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. This morning, I want us to pause and consider who are the voices that we listen to? What are the voices that you hear in your life? Actually, for some of you, I I know who some of those voices are because of the way you speak. You say things to me that I know are things that those people say often. That's how it is. The voices we listen to, they teach us in a sense, and and then we repeat those very ideas the longer we listen to them. Sometimes it's the voice of advertising. You know, the one that says, what you really need is a better vacuum cleaner, (laughs) What you really need is a better energy drink. Or maybe it's the, 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 the voice of the, the personal coach who's saying really what you need is better self-image or just a better outlook on life. Maybe it's the gurus of the day who would say what you need really is to look deeper in yourself and to find the path. What you need to figure out is how to be true to yourself, how to follow your heart or your dreams or your gut or your emotions. And we begin to follow those things. Sometimes we follow those those gurus, those voices that are directing our path until as we're sailing along in life, we run aground and everything comes crashing on the shore. 
That's what we find in the book of Isaiah. Uh, The people of Judah, God has spoken to them over and over and over, called them to hear his voice, to follow him, to trust him, and they kept running after their own vision of what it is that's going to give them hope or comfort or sustain them. And sure enough, that road led them to captivity in Babylon. And it's as they're there in Babylon and seeing the gods of others lifted up and they they see that, that... They look around themselves and see this this pagan nation seems to be flourishing and here we are in captivity. And what we saw last week, and this is an important verse for today, back in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 14, what did the people of Zion say? The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. That's self-talk. That's what we contend to do. We can tend to run after the the path that we set for ourselves or thinking this thing will save me, this will give me hope, the the better product or the better self-image or the better idea or or the better emotion. If I just run after that and then we, we sail along and we run aground and we find ourselves like they did in captivity, we find ourselves with all of our dreams and aspirations crushed and dashed and we say, God, you forgot me. It's you who's forsaken me. The problem is, is that fallen humanity has become disoriented. And by disoriented, I mean, so the word orient means to like, to, to create a relationship between a fixed point and something that you know. You have to get oriented. For instance, there's a, there's a competition called orienteering where they take people out to an unknown property, a wilderness or somewhere, and they let them out and they have a compass and a map. And they have, to, they have to orient themselves on the map and with the compass and find their way to certain checkpoints. And they're racing against other people who do the same thing. But they have to get oriented. They have to figure out what is north and what is south and where am I on this map. Well, we are spiritually disoriented. And what we find in Isaiah 50, the first three verses, is that God has to reorient us. And he reorients his people, the, the, the Israelites who are there in captivity. So that's the, if you, if you like outlines, you can, um, your first point would be God reorients our misguided thinking. He has to do that. And the reason we have to be reoriented is because what, what we actually believe, what we think almost instinctively in our fallen nature is that we are the ones who's at the center. I am at the center of all things. Now, this plays itself out in a lot of ways. Think about your relationships. In a relationship, when, when someone that you're in a relationship with, suddenly you feel a distance, you think, why did they pull away from me? Don't you think that way? We, we automatically think, that person pulled away from me because I know I'm at the center. Spouses, we, we do this, don't we? Why, why is my spouse, why did they pull away? Why aren't they communicating well with me? What is it that they're failing to say that, that they need to say? Because clearly, I know where I am. I'm right here. I understand myself perfectly. Parents and children do that. Roommates do that. And the reason that happens and that narrative plays in our mind is because we think, I'm right here all along. I never met, went anywhere. And that's exactly what the Israelites say. God, you're the one who's forsaken us. You're the one who's forgotten us. So what God does in the, what we find in these first three verses is him reorienting, 
reorienting his people. Look at what he says in verse one. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Now, to understand the context of this, you would need to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, where God gives instructions about a certificate of divorce. And that was given and provided to, it was for a husband who found something in his wife that, that he, he, dis, he discerned was an uncleanness in her or he was dissatisfied and he could give a certificate of divorce, which was actually gave her legal standing in a sense. It actually in a, in a way protected her, but that certificate was a permanent severing of the relationship. Meaning, if, if she went and remarried someone who then died, she couldn't go back and remarry the first husband. It was permanently severed. That's really what God was saying is, this, this relationship was meant to be permanent, and you can't lightly sever it and then think you can just kind of go back and forth. It actually says there's no good, it implies there's no good reason to have ever severed it. Now, Jesus speaks to this in, in the Gospels. He, he says that the certificate is given because of the hardness of your hearts. If you hadn't had such hard hearts, you wouldn't have needed that. Now, what's implied in God asking the question here is that the Israelites have accused him, have accused God of being hard-hearted, of arbitrarily just sending them away I'm just displeased with you. So God sent them away and he asked, where's this certificate? You can't produce one. I didn't sever the relationship with you. He goes on and he asks, or which of my creditors is it to you to whom I have sold you? The, the, the accusation that's kind of implied there is they've said, you know, the reason that we're in slavery is that God somehow was indebted. He had a debt, he had a deficiency, an inadequacy, he had something that he lacked, and so he had to make up for that by selling us into slavery. Surely it wasn't because of something in us. Surely he didn't send us away or sell us into slavery. We're not in captivity, it's not our fault. It must be some deficiency in God. Their bearings have gotten skewed. They're disoriented. They're thinking that the inadequacy is in God, and he says in the Second part of verse one, behold, for your iniquities you were sold. For your transgressions your mother was sent away. So God isn't simply dismissive of his people. He's not indebted to anyone at all. The problem is, is that we are not innocent. We're not the victims. The Israelites were not the victims in this. And this is a startling truth. It's a startling truth for all of us when we realize the, the true reality of our, of our fallen condition. God's people in this, in this passage, he's saying, you are the guilty ones. You're the ones who left. Their situation wasn't a consequence of God being dismissive or indebted or inadequate or hard-hearted. It was because of their iniquities. It's not just true of them. It's true of us in our relationship with God. We're the guilty ones. We aren't the victims. We're the transgressors. And God is the victim, though he he doesn't carry around a victim in, victim's mentality. Look, there's another surprise though. There's an unexpected turn in verse two. Verse two, we read, why, and this is God speaking, why when I came, was there no man? Why when I called, was there no one to answer? So God is saying, if, if you were innocent, if you were the innocent one pining away for this relationship with me, 
just hoping that I would see the error of my ways and come back to you. Why is it when I came, there was no one there? There was no one to answer. I called, you weren't listening. Now, that was true for the Israelites in Isaiah's lifetime as he lived. Also after, uh, as, the, as this prophecy is written, in Isaiah's lifetime for people who would be in captivity 150 years later, it was true later. It was true before Isaiah. Over and over, the Israelites ignored God's word. He would come, he would speak through the prophets. They would disregard them, pay them little attention. It was even true when God took on flesh Right, when God took on flesh and came to his own people and they didn't receive him then either. And it still happens. God comes. He comes and he speaks to us through his word and we still ignore him. People still ignore him today. The cause isn't in him, it's in us. But there's one more thing to notice in these first three verses God then says to the people, he reminds them, the one who speaks, he reminds them and he reminds us that he is able and willing to save. This is the truth. It surprises us that we're sinful, that we're the ones to blame, but then God says to that, he says, and I am powerful and willing to save. Verse two and three, he talks about this. He says, is my hand shortened that it cannot save? or they cannot redeem, or have have I no power to deliver? Behold, by by my rebuke, I dry up the sea, I make rivers a desert, fish stink for lack of water, I clothe the heavens with blackness. He's referring back to the mighty works that he did in delivering them out of Egypt. Some of the wonders of what God did there in delivering his people out, not not only out of Egypt, but even, even held back and dried up the Jordan River later. God can do this. He says, look, I have all power. I have all power over all creation. Nothing can stay my hand. Nothing can stop me. And not only am I able to redeem, I'm willing. Don't you know that I'm ready to act on your behalf? So here we are, the Israelites, with a God who's ready to care for them and ready to deliver. And he speaks and they just won't listen. And aren't we that way as well? To illustrate it, I wanna talk about the only family member that I can talk about in our home without recourse, and that's our dog, Sandy. I don't have to ask for her permission at any time. I thought just the other day, again, every evening, and it gets earlier and earlier in the evening, and she's looking for any indication that I'm ready to feed her. She'll, she'll come up and nudge my leg and, and she's ready. And all I have to do is nod and she is to the food bowl. The smallest indication and she's ready to hear, you know, master, I'm ready to listen. Here I am. But the moment I let her out in the backyard and she finds a mole, it doesn't matter how loudly I yell at her, she is deaf. She cannot hear me. And I was just thinking, how often can we be that way? How often can we be that way with God's word even? We just turn a deaf ear. Not now, I have something else that's more important. Not now, now's not the time. We're without excuse when we refuse to respond to the one who is able to save and ready to save. He's showing us even in his word right here in Isaiah 50, this convergence of his power and his love. They're right there both at work, ready. And while we're without excuse, 
or defense against him in his just condemnation, his love still pursues its purpose. Enter the Lord's servant. That's what happens in Isaiah 50. He says, you ignore me, you won't listen to me, I'm ready to save you. And then what we hear in verses four through nine is the voice of the Lord's servant. This is the the third of the servant songs in Isaiah. We heard about him back in Isaiah chapter 42. We heard from the Lord's servant in Isaiah 49. In this passage, he's not mentioned or named until verse 10, but but in verse 10 then we're we're told, are you listening to the voice of the servant who speaks from verse 4 to 9 in this passage today? Remember, this is the promised servant who's spirit-filled, who would not break the bruised reed or snuff out the faintly burning wick. The Lord's servant is the one who will bring justice and who's a light for all the nations so that God's salvation would reach to the very ends of the earth. This is the prophetic description of God the Son, Jesus Christ. We know him by name. So what about this servant do we find in these verses here in Isaiah 50? In these four verses, or these verses from four through nine, I want you to listen for two things. First, the servant in contrast with us. With us and with the Israelites who ignore God, who won't listen. Listen to the contrast between the servant and God's people. But then listen to how the servant is equipped to, to uphold and help his people. Verse 4, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who were taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The servant is given an ear to hear the Lord God and a tongue to strengthen the weary. So while the the Israelites are are fallen people, ignore God's voice, We, we, we won't listen. The servant heard the Lord's voice day by day, morning by morning. But he didn't didn't only listen so that he could just like store up knowledge, but he's listening so that he can speak then as one who's been taught. The servant would also, he would have a prophetic office, a, a teaching and preaching office, declaring God's will. But notice he does so in such a way to, as we read in verse four, to sustain with a word him who is weary. The servant of the Lord, who we know by name, Jesus of Nazareth, he has an ear to hear so that he can sustain the one who is weary. First, where there was no man among God's people to answer when he called, notice in contrast, the servant received God's word day by day. It isn't only the Israelites who ignore God. As Paul wrote in Romans 3, all have turned aside together. We've all become worthless. None of us pursue him. Left to ourselves, we would all refuse to hear God's voice, much less heed it. But that's not the case with the servant. He's ready to hear. So notice that contrast. But then second, notice that he listens in order to comfort. He's equipped. He's enabled to sustain and care for people who are languishing. Verses five and six, we find out more about this servant. He says, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So 
What we hear is that the servant's open ear, it received the word and then acted on it. He was obedient. He was faithful to do what the father called him to do. He didn't shrink back from following that word. So he was not rebellious. He wasn't rebellious in any way. He didn't turn backward. He didn't run away from the path that was laid before him. Now you may say, well, well, of course he didn't. I mean, he was God the Father's favored son. He was privileged in every way. Well, let's consider the path that he was privileged to walk. He describes it here prophetically in Isaiah 50. He gave his back to those who strike. Notice, they didn't take his back, he gave it. The Lord's servant gave himself. He offered himself up. He was scorned, he's humiliated. That's what's represented with tearing the the hair from the face, pulling the beard out. That's, That's disgraceful and shameful. And then he's spat upon as well. Again, he didn't shy away from, that such, from such treatment when he was called to it. He didn't turn back. Notice again the contrast with Israel and with fallen people like us. They ignored God and then accused God of forsaking them. God, this is your fault. It's your fault that I am where I am. They repeatedly did the opposite of what he commanded, but then said, you've forgotten us, but not his servant, not Jesus. Jesus was obedient in every way, even when it included suffering and shame and that for the sins of others. We grumble, we grumble, we pull away from God when we suffer even for our own sins. We say, God, why, why, does, why do I have to experience this when it's actually our own sins that have, have led to that or the sins of decisions we've made, paths we've, time, times when we've ignored him. We suffer and we say, God, why would you do this? Notice that Jesus refused to complain, but he continued entrusting himself to God even when he suffered because of our sins, not his own. Finally, in verses seven through nine, as we consider the servant, the Lord's servant here, I want you to notice that he was established and vindicated by the Lord God. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. The servant is confident in the Lord's help. God will help me. It's that confidence that makes him sure that his obedience and trust and his devotion, it won't be in vain. This isn't leading to shame. Ultimately, it may, be, it may lead through shame, but that's not at the end. I can trust God. He will help me. He will see me through this. Therefore, he says, I have set my face like flint, like a rock. The servant was oriented squarely on God's will. There was no turning There was no turning to the right or to the left. The Father's word and will were his north star. Actually, the predictability and the certainty of the north star is a weak, weak metaphor in comparison to Jesus' confidence in the Father's will and his eternal word. The word is eternal. The, the North Star is a distant point of reference that's temporal. It's, it's, it, it, it'll only, it has a limited duration. It's only visible occasionally. The Word of God is near. It's eternal. It's always present. Now, we, we hear and receive God's Word, but when we do, we do it a bit here and a bit there. 
We take it, we leave it. But in Luke 9, we're told that Jesus never wavered from it. Jesus, even as he was nearing the time when he was going to be delivered up, he was gonna be delivered up to shame and disgrace and torment and suffering and even death, we're told he set his face toward Jerusalem like a rock. He wouldn't waver to the left or to the right. Not only was the servant's heart and obedience established like Flint, but he was also confident that the Lord would vindicate him. Verses eight and nine, it's an interesting uh, passage there. It includes questions, and those questions have an implied answer. There's an implied answer. He says, the Lord is near, and he will speak on my behalf. So with the Lord near, who will contend with me? The implied answer is no one. If God is on your, is on your side, no one. If the Lord God, he asks, is, is my advocate, who is my adversary then? No one. I have no adversary if the Lord God is, is, is on my side. Well, since the Lord God helps me, who will declare me guilty? If it's God who will vindicate me, who then will declare me guilty? The implied answer is no one. So the servant listened, he obeyed, he persevered even through suffering. He was steadfast and faithful in every way. And he knew that the Father would vindicate him fully. And God the Father did. This has happened already. In raising Jesus Christ from the dead, God the Father vindicated him. Jesus is the real deal. He is authentic. Every claim that he has made to being God is true. Every claim that he has made that he has come to redeem his people is authentic. The fact that he has declared that I am the sheep who's come, or I'm the shepherd who's come to lay down my life for my sheep, it is true, it is authentic, it is solid, it is rock solid. He's been vindicated. Now, brothers and sisters, this is good news for us. This is good news for us because it is in his vindication that we have justification. Turn with me to Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter eight, if you have a Bible with you or a device. Paul has, uh, before this, has been describing our need for a savior the reality of sin, he has shared prior to this, the work of Jesus Christ. He's come to redeem us. As we have faith in Christ, there is for us now no condemnation, he says at the beginning of Romans chapter eight. As we are in Christ Jesus, he's saying as we have faith in Christ, we are united to him. Just as we read in 2 Corinthians 5, if we are united to him, then it is not our righteousness that we stand in, but the righteousness of Christ that's reckoned to us. Paul takes that idea that we are justified now. We have right standing before God, not because of what we've done, but because of who Jesus is and because Jesus has been vindicated and our hope is in him. We're united to him. Paul takes these very questions, very similar questions, and he, he asks them, Look in Romans 8, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, 
How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The answer is no one. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? No one. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Do you see, in the vindication of the Son, we have the justification and the hope of His people. He goes on to ask, who? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one and nothing. This is the gospel message, that the Son who is vindicated is our hope, and in His vindication, We're justified, we're accepted, we're adopted, we're received in Christ. Now, this is the good servant. So as God, back in Isaiah 50, just as he declares to the people, don't you see, don't you see that you are the one who's not listening? You are the one who continues to follow your own path. I have not forgotten you. I have not written you off. You are the guilty one. And in the face of our guilt, we have the entrance of the servant who steps in and says, I will obey. I will obey. Even if that path leads to suffering and shame, even though that path does lead directly to a cross, I will not waver. I will not waver to the right or to the left. Now, Isaiah 50 closes with these two verses that are that, that really pose a question to us all. And it's two different, two different sets of people, two different groups of people are in view here. He asked the question in verse 10, and the, the question is, who has your ear? Who are we listening to? First, he says, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Notice, to fear the Lord is to obey the voice of his servant. It's the same group of people. To fear God is to hear the voice of his servant. And to obey, to trust, to follow. He says, let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. So the first group, those who fear the Lord and obey his servant, that they fear and they, they trust God. That is, do you, do you trust me and will you listen to my servant? And those people, notice in this, in this verse, he says, you're walking in the unknown. You feel like you're walking in darkness. But the call is to trust God to trust the one who does know. College students sitting here, I know that you can feel like the expectation is that you should have everything figured out by the end of college. Actually, I know some of you, and I know when you came in as a freshman, you already felt like you needed to have things figured out before you started college. I need to know exactly my major. I need to know where I'm going to work. I need to know where I'm going to live. I need to have life all figured out. I want you to hear Isaiah 50. Jesus invites you to come and follow him in the unknown. In the unknown. Here it's depicted as being in darkness. Trust the one who does know. This doesn't only apply to college students. All of us, all of us have seasons in life when we're acutely aware of how little we know about the future. Actually, when God reveals to us how little control we have in those moments, it seems like we're groping in the dark. Maybe you're in that season now or you've experienced it. Well, the Lord's servant calls you to hear his voice and know that he will sustain you. And this is what it means to live 
in reliance on him. He says, trust in the name of the Lord. Trust in my character. Trust in who I am. One commentator refers to this trust as confidence reposed in a person. It's our confidence that's reposed, that's resting in a person, resting in Jesus. Verse 11 then talks about another group of people. He says, behold, all you who kindle a fire. That is those who kindle your own light. You create your own light, your own fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches. Walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you've kindled. Walk by that, and this you will have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. This is a word of warning to those who trust themselves. Their do-it-yourself salvation, their own man-made fire. They light their own path. These are the ones who are self-equipped, looking within for solutions, following their own instincts and desires. God says that's gonna lead you in the end to torment. The other day, I picked up a book that I haven't read since college. Um, It's a book that God used in a a real um, particular way in my my Christian life, and it's a a book by C.S. Lewis, a short story called The Great Divorce. I told someone the other day, it's worth buying the book for the preface alone. It's just a few pages, but the preface alone is well worth the cost of the book. In it, Lewis writes this, I don't think all who choose wrong roads perish. But their rescue consists in being put back on the right road. A sum, like in in math, he says, a sum can be put right, but only by going back till you find the error and working it fresh from that point, never simply going on. Evil can be undone, but it cannot develop into good. Time does not heal it. God wants to reorient our life. He wants us to see where is it that I'm, that I'm beginning to think that, that God, is, God is the transgressor and I'm the victim in life. No, when am I going to be honest with myself? So how do we move forward? How do we get back on the right path? It begins by being honest with yourself and, and with God about your fears, about your uncertainties, and about your sin. Stop blaming and accusing the one who loves you and instead ask him for his mercy. He's ready. He's ready to give it. And consider again the Lord's servant. Consider Jesus Christ. See the determination. See the perseverance of his obedience to the Father. See how attentive Jesus was to the Father's voice. Look at his willingness even to suffer in order to be faithful. And now instead of just admiring that in Jesus... Instead of just admiring those attributes and saying, wow, that's incredible. See that they were done out of love for you. The open ear, the sustaining word, his non-rebelliousness, his back being given to the rod, his face being offered for disgrace was all for love's sake, for you. then put down the torch. Put down that torch that you fashioned to try and light your own path. Put down that self-kindled fire that that you hold tightly. It it may be self-pity or a sense of superiority, maybe a compulsion to please people or a spirit of antagonism. Maybe you've tried to light your path with a a judgmental and critical approach to life or a laissez-faire, live and let live mentality, whatever it is. 
Jesus wants you to put it down and follow him. And that means follow him by relying on him, trusting him. Following him means something though. It means listening and observing and believing. Do as he does. Have an open ear to God's word. Then your words will begin to reflect those of someone who's been taught. And you'll see that he will light your path for the next step and the next step as you confidently repose and rest in him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for this incredible passage in Isaiah and that in it we get to hear your voice and we get to see the Lord's servant who is our savior. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your obedience in every way. Thank you that you lived a sinless life and that you willingly died in our place. We rejoice in your resurrection, that you've been fully vindicated. We trust and rest in you and we know that in your resurrection is our justification. So we thank you, we praise you, we worship you. Help us now, Holy Spirit, to see and know our Savior and to by faith to follow him. In Christ's name, amen.